The Conspiracy Podcast contains adult themes, language, violence, and sexual situations. Basically, all the good stuff. Thanks for listening. Fresh to the touch as though he had just been buried. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Conspiracy, the podcast where we sip on conspiracies. And if you don't know, my name is Liz. I'm coming to you live from Katie's bedroom. Oh, yeah, baby. (laughs) (laughs) This is what Katie's always wanted. Yes, now we're just missing Renee. Oh, I'm here. I'm just. (laughs) (laughs) I am just um in my safety bunker still, but I am here. She can just subscribe to our OnlyFans. Yeah. Oh goodness. Oh no. (laughs) No, We all got to get that hustle. That's true. Well, welcome back. Uh, That was Katie and also Renee. Yep. And That's, uh, that's us. Here we are, another socially distant, but less socially distant episode of Conspiracy. And one day soon, we'll all three be back together, socially distancing and podcasting. Eventually. Someday. In 2023. I mean, definitely depending on how November goes, it might be 2023, let's be real. I waited until we were recording to tell you what I'm drinking. Do you want to know what I'm drinking? Yes, of course I want to know what you're drinking. Are you ready to scream? Oh, God. I mean, I'm not, but I will be. You could take a basic bitch guess. I'm having one large iced pumpkin spice latte with a double shot and the caramel drizzle. (laughs) That sounds delicious. (laughs) It sounds delicious. I love that. So the Dunkin' by my house, they literally, when I pull up, they go, hi, how are you? And I always go, hi, how are you? And they're like, okay, one large iced coffee, pumpkin, extra (laughs) shot caramel drizzle and I'm like yep that's me oh <laughs> they know you that's it's so like, sweet and it's half the price of the Starbucks pumpkin spice latte oh yeah I, I I love me some Dunkin Donuts for the re- simple reason as it's just as good as Starbucks their syrups are slightly on the sweeter side oh God, yeah, I whenever I get a caramel macchiato from Dunkin Donuts I'm always like oh my god I'm gonna die from sugar Oh, see, I don't do any sugar in my coffee drinks, so I'm totally fine. I'll just get plain Duncan. Better than all of you. (laughs) (laughs) I just get a 
They do a thing where like between two and three, they do $2 cold brew. And I used to go all the time when I worked downtown. Well, what are you, you can, you can go now. I don't leave my house, Katie. And I don't have any disposable income right now. Show them tatas on OnlyFans. Hell. No, I already, I already have a side hustle. What is it? Fiverr. By the way, mm, mm, Fiverr and I are enemies right now. Why? Who's not your enemy right now? What? (laughs) Who? Let me tell you guys why Fiverr and I are enemies right now. Okay. So earlier this week, I was um, scanning my little section of Fiverr, the lifestyle and spirituality section, because I like to occasionally look and, you know, see, oh, what are other people doing? If this is a really popular thing people are looking at, maybe I can do something like this. I like to know what my competitors are doing. And I see a spell with the ex- or a spell gig with the exact same title as my most popular spell gig. Oh, and I was like, hmm, that's odd, but maybe it's just a coincidence. I click on it just to see. It is the content of my spell oh. verbatim. They have literally taken the description from mine and copied it and pasted it. Oh. Yes. So I emailed Fiverr and I was like, hey, this has to be a terms of service violation. Like they have literally stole my content. Of course, they're not doing the same spells because I don't say specifically what spells I'm doing. And also Kat talked to them just to fuck with them. And here is what they said their spell consisted of. First of all, they do it even though it says I will punish your enemies with a powerful binding spell. When they talked to Kat, they said it was a love binding spell. Oh, and Kat and Kat would give the name of the person they were in love with. This person would do a spell and then send the send Kat a picture. Kat would then burn the picture and then use the ashes to wash her hair. And after that, the person would be obsessed with them. That is the most ridiculous fake nonsense I have ever heard in my time of witchery. Like, what the... So, Marty pissed off because this person is, like, fucking with my money because they took my shit. So, I sent Fiverr a thing. I was like, this is a violation of terms of service. Do something about it. And I also found two other people this person stole spells from, messaged them, and said, hey, this person stole spells from you. You should, you know, I've already reported them. You can if you want to and they both told me they were going to so this person blocked me because i messaged them and i was like i see you stole my spell i just want you to know that i have reported you and i've included screenshots just in case you try and change it get your own spells don't steal other people's so they blocked me without responding but i would check incognito to see if they were still pulling their bullshit and a couple of days ago when i checked they didn't have any gigs up so I was like, okay, cool. Fiverr did something. Fabulous. Thank you, Fiverr, for doing the right thing. So today, I get a notification that my gig has been taken down. <gasps> no. What? Mine. My gig that was that was stolen. My best-selling gig that I've made probably 85% of my money on that platform. What the That f- I have over 100 five-star reviews on. I was livid. I was livid. So I immediately sent them a message and I was like, uh, pardonnez-moi. Why am I I'm the one? Why am I the victim being punished here? Because this, like, I have not only made myself money, I've made you guys a lot of money with this. Mm-hmm. And I am the per- 
this is the gig that was stolen from me. Why are you taking it away from me? So I haven't heard from them yet. I immediately put it back up. Like I just created a new one with the exact same title and the exact same content. But I've lost all of those reviews. That's so shitty. That's so annoying. So make it right, Fiverr. Or I'll put your Fiverr link in the episode uh, notes. And everyone that listens to this, please leave Renee a review. Is that a thing we can do? Can we do that? I think you have to place an order. But if you message me and tell me you heard this on Conspiracy or you come there from Conspiracy, just message me and let me know and I'll give you a special deal. Because that's bullshit. That's, yeah, I was, I was so mad. Anyways, Katie, cheer me up by telling me about your haunted child. Well, I have a segue, a segue, if you will. Because, you know, segue. Okay, a segue, a segue, as the Italians call it. A segue. In the spirit of your witchcraft, I wanted to shout someone out that I found. I don't know if you've heard of this person, but his name is Thomas Dale um, on Instagram and YouTube. Mm -hmm. Like, he's a stand-up comedian turned clairvoyant. And I just want to say that I literally have watched, like, a million interviews with him over the last, like, 24 hours. And he did this interview with the Chatty Broads podcast. I don't know if you guys listen to them. Probably not. It's more Liz aesthetic. But it's really (laughs) good. They do, like, Bachelor recaps and, like, astrology episodes. It's, like, everything I love in a podcast. It's really cool. Mm -hmm. Um, And he came on, and he had never met them before. And they, like, showed ahead of time that, like, he doesn't follow them on Instagram. Like, he doesn't know anything about them. He lives in New York. Like, they live in L.A. And he literally could pull information from, like, their great-great-grandparents. He would show their family members, like holding objects that are special to their family and he could tell that one of them had had miscarriages and what they were going to name them and that was never publicly like released information it was the hell and that's crazy so crazy and he was saying like when he was like four he would be talking to someone in his room and his mom would be like Tato who are you talking to and he was like oh i'm talking to the earth and she was like what and he was like yeah i'm talking to the earth she said that when i'm 50 uh, it's gonna be on fire. Holy shit. Like this kid he's forty. Who? This guy is forty. So we have ten more years. Yeah. He said like he was he's still not sure. Like when he tries to channel that, he's like still not sure if he means like literally on fire or if he means like we're gonna have like a rebirth, like a rebuild. Oh, I see that coming. I can see that. Yeah. Also so, though, they could have taken everything that's happening right now and just you know been right. like <laughs> Well you saw shit's hitting the fan. I mean he's only forty, so he's got ten years. I mean, the Earth's already kind of on fire, though. Yeah, and he said, like, he would have seen, like, death and, like, destruction, like, ultimate destruction. He said, like, he probably would have been able to, like, channel that. He doesn't think it like that. He thinks it's more like a a rebuild and a rebirth. Speaking of children seeing things or... (laughs) Speaking of children talking to things that aren't there... So, yeah. That was a perfect segue, Liz. That was. Thank you. You combined both. Check him out. Thomas Dale. He's Thomas Dale... Thomas Dale, D-A-L-E-5 on Instagram. Uh, he's doing, like, 80, 60 to 80 minute private readings for, like, in my opinion, very affordable. It's, like, $75. Literally, until he did this podcast interview, he was open for, like, all of September, and now he's booked all the way into, like, March 2021. Anyways, my youngest child has been playing with our Parker Brothers Ouija board. 
Um, it glows in the dark, so it's pretty cool. I can't remember. I'm pretty sure I've said this on the podcast before. We're like 99% sure he sees and hears and talks to things that nobody else can see, hear, or talk to. He does weird things. He's done weird things since he was like really, really young. And so he played with our Ouija board the other day and he asked us how we play it. And we were like, well, you just say, you know, hey, is there is there a ghost in the house? <laughs> so he was like, is there a ghost in the house? And I asked him, I was like, well, is there a ghost in the house? And he said, yeah, there's a little boy upstairs. <gasps> what? No. Isn't that where you are right now? Yes. yes. But here's the thing. A few months ago, and I've told y'all this, I think. A few months ago, he, him and I were both home alone by ourselves. We were downstairs together and he was talking to someone and he kept saying, are you still there? I thought he was talking to me. And so I was like, yeah, I'm still here. And he was like, no, I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to the little boy that's upstairs in my room. And I was like, okay. And I just kind of left it alone. <laughs> Move on to a few days ago. He is once again mentioning some little boy that lives in his room. And I said, if I go upstairs right now, would I see the little boy? He said, no, he hides under my bed. And so I was like, if I look under your bed, will I see him? He said, no, he'll be gone. And I said, where are his mommy and daddy? He said, they're across the street in the woods. And later on in the day, I said, hey, is that little boy still in your room? He said, no, he's in the woods with his mommy and daddy. No. I'm not joking. No. These are words coming out of his mouth. Like, he's four years old, too. Like, saying shit that I'm just like... And we don't watch... Like, I don't watch horror movies in front of him. Like, the scariest stuff he's seen is... I don't, Halloween Town, Hocus Pocus. Like, that's the stuff mm-hmm. he watches. So last <laughs> night, Sean and I get home from work. And we get the boys in bed. And the little one starts acting really strange. Like, really strange. He's saying things. Like, really weird things. Sean said when he was putting him to sleep, he just kept staring at Sean. And Sean was like, do you want to talk about something? And they talked about it. And I can't remember what the hell they talked about. But like, he was just, he seemed very worried and concerned. It was really bizarre. I don't know if he was really, really tired. But of course, in my mind and in Sean's mind, we were both like, well, shit. We let him play with the Ouija board. Now he's fucking possessed. So Sean and I are downstairs in the living room last night. Sean's playing FIFA and I'm just sitting on the couch and we have a desktop computer downstairs just sitting there minding our own business the computer just comes on by itself Mm-mm. and it goes and it just hangs out for a moment and I'm like staring at it I'm not getting up because I don't want to go over there because whatever's over there can just hang out in the computer that's fine and then it just goes black again all by itself and doesn't mm. come back on or anything Katie you are living in the poltergeist house <laughs> my god and my ipad just lit up i didn't touch it it is i don't i mean if parker parker brothers ouija board i don't think it's that i think my child is just and like i've said none of it's bothers none of it bothers me i don't care he can talk to the dead he can play with the dead he can hang out with them i don't care as long as they don't bother me as long as i don't see them i mean i can see them as long as they're like okay looking i don't want to see some mangled like shit just don't possess my child like just let him he can guide you he's a calm I think if anything I think it's because he's such a caring calm empathetic child that this is why I I mean I truly believe he he sees and things that we can't see or hear and I think it's just that that vibe that he has within himself of being such a 
nurturing person at such a young age. And he still sometimes will talk about like having a past life. It yeah. like he'll mention like when I when I was an adult before or grown up before and we we're like, You haven't been a grown up. He's like, Yes, I have been. I'm <laughs> just like, Okay. That's awesome. Like, I love that. So basically you're living in a combo of the poltergeist and the insidious house. Yes, but hopefully okay, it doesn't but also get like that the way. Movie Mama Mia. We're gonna I'm gonna throw that in there for good luck. Thank you. Thank you. Mama Mama Mia? Yeah, because that's just what I want. Because that's a that's a happy that's a happy yeah, one. There's like water and songs. Doesn't have to be possessed, but that was a good segue into what we're talking about today. So on that note, <laughs> Let me, let me learn y'all something about Ed and Lorraine Warren. If you don't know who Ed and Lorraine Warren are, which majority of people probably have seen quite a few of their movies that are somewhat based off of their paranormal experiences, which one of these bitches is going to talk about. <laughs> I can't remember which one. We can't either, so it's okay. I'm going to do my favorite part, which is giving y'all some backstory. I love a good backstory. Why are you the way that you are? Right. <laughs> Ed Warren was born on September 7, 1926, in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Ed's father was a state trooper and a devout Catholic. Around age five, Ed saw his first apparition. It was an older woman who was actually the landlord of the home that they were living in, and she passed away. And a few days after she passed away, Ed saw her in his closet, Mm -mm. looking as mean and bitchy as she was alive on Earth. (laughs) 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 when ed was 12 he had a nun come to him and she said some kind of told him what his journey in life was going to be like essentially what he should do but he went the other way ed told his father about you know his friends that were hanging out with him every now and then in his closet hoping for an explanation but his father had nothing for young ed as to why he was seeing these ghostly figures. After moving out of the house, the spirit still lingered in Ed's mind, and so his interest in the paranormal world world only got more curious. And so now let's move on to little Miss Lorraine. Lorraine Rita Moran was born on January 31st, 1927, in Bridgeport, Connecticut, as well. She attended Laurelton Hall, which was a pretty prestigious Catholic girls' school. While at the school, Lorraine began realizing certain people's lights seemed to be brighter than others. Her gift of reading people's auras was discovered at a young age by, uh, from herself and from the staff at the Catholic school. So she had this really unique ability uh, to read people at her Catholic school. And I don't know if she was telling people I don't know why if you're going to a Catholic school, any type of religious school, and you're like, hey, look at this witchery that I can do. But somehow it got out, and the staff at the school did not like it. So one weekend, they sent Lorraine off to uh, a weekend retreat for prayer and silence. The nuns thought her psychic abilities were sinful. Well, yeah, of course. From what I understand is she read (laughs) from something that I read. It's like one nun in particular (laughs) just had this shit around her like she was just awful so I'm sure Lorraine was just like you're really awful (laughs) she was just like fuck you go go sit in silence for a weekend so Ed and Lorraine Warren met when they were teenagers and uh while still living in Bridgeport Connecticut 
Ed was 16 years old when Lorraine went to the Colonial Theater that uh, Ed worked at as an usher. They actually met on June 23, 1943. Uh, Call it her clairvoyance or intuition, but Lorraine pretty much knew that day that she met Ed that she was going to marry him. And two years later, on May 22, 1945, Ed and Lorraine were married. Ed was 18 years old when he left for uh, the war with the Navy. He left behind Lorraine with their only child, named uh, a daughter named Judy. And she was only six months old. When Ed returned from war, he attended Perry Art School, but dropped out to paint landscapes throughout New England. And he also went looking for his favorite hobby, haunted houses. That's a good kid. <laughs> his paintings of homes and landscapes started uh, a somewhat early career for him. Ed would sell his paintings on roadsides, and eventually he combined both of his hobbies of basically being a ghost hunter and a painter, and he would start doing paintings of haunted houses, and he would go and sell it to the homeowners, and somehow he convinced people to allow, like, he would be like, hey, look, I painted your house. By the way, I know your house is haunted. Do you mind if I come in? And they would let him just come in and, like, wander around looking for ghosts and shit. Oh, so he's <laughs> he was basically Michael J. Fox from The Frighteners. Which, by the way, sure. one of my favorite movies never of all time. What? You've never seen that? Mm-mm. Oh, my God. It's not on any streaming platforms, which sucks. I keep an eye out regularly because it is one of my favorite movies of all time. But yeah, that's, um, if I may do a segue real quick, Frighteners, Peter Jackson's best movie. Don't debate me on this. And yes, I do mean Peter Jackson, who did Lord of the Rings. So Michael J. Fox plays a guy who sees ghosts and basically he gets the ghosts to go into people's houses and then he offers his services as a psychic clairvoyant to get the ghost out of the house so it's like a little a little con with his ghost friends there's also a serial killer who is also a ghost it's a great movie if you can ever find it also listeners if you know anywhere i can fucking watch the frighteners i just just want to watch it anyways so back to ed and lorraine so when Ed and Lorraine got together, they combined their powers like Captain Planet and started a paranormal business. I love that. They were, yeah, they were just like, you know what? Here we are. Ed was the demonologist. Lorraine used psychic powers to communicate with the dead. Ed and Lorraine slowly began communicating to strangers about a spirit that was in their presence, basically as if they were like walking down the street and they'd be like, hey, you. Did you know there's a dead person following you? Or, you know, they just say some random shit to some random people. Their whole spill of who they were started to become more aware uh, or more well-known. And so the Warrens began giving lectures at colleges to inform the youth that their young rebellious attitudes were causing negative energy to surround them, inviting unwanted guests into their lives. In 1952... They founded the New England Society for Psychic Research, which is the oldest ghost hunting group in New England. Now, this was very unusual for 1952. Not only were Ed and Lorraine openly seeking haunted houses at that time, they went one step further and said, Hey, people in Connecticut, come hunt some fucking ghosts with us. But people weren't jumping up and down and running to join. 
This was not at a time when people could openly speak about ghosts or possibly living in a haunted house. So Ed and Lorraine really did not give a fuck. Call them crazy. They were embracing that shit in the 1950s. Eventually, the society wanted to help the people that were being haunted and the spirits that were doing the hauntings. They had a team full of clergies and scientists on the research. People who were true believers and followers of the Warrens called them trailblazers and valuable. That was in quotes, by the way, to the paranormal world. The Society for Psychic Research has reportedly investigated more than 10,000 hauntings and paranormal sightings. The Warrens also have the Warrens Occult Museum, which opened to the public sometime after they founded the research group. This museum was home to spirit-infested clothes, dolls, and other subjects and objects. One that a lot of y'all are familiar with, named Annabelle. Their investigations took place throughout America and overseas. They realized different spirits required different remedies to release them into their final resting place. The Warrens were very thorough in their investigations. They would quickly make it to wherever they were summoned, and once there, they would start working right away. Ed would give interviews to the people who contacted them, while Lorraine would do a walkthrough of the property to try and pick up on any paranormal activity. <laughs> like the movie. <laughs> Good one. Lorraine was pretty quick on her reactions to whether or not a house was really haunted, or if it was a hoax, or if they were a hoax. We don't know. She could pick up on either earthbound spirits or otherworldly spirits, a.k.a. demons. <laughs> they had a big thing on, on demons. That was like their yeah. main. That was always their main culprit. They love demons. Because they monetized I was about to say, because they made a shit ton of money when there was a demon. Yep. Yes, um, they did. Earthbound spirits were usually trapped, lost, or confused because their death may have been tragic or sudden. So these earthbound spirits just aren't aware that they are really dead. These spirits would wander around, mostly causing annoying disturbances, lights flickering, banging, knocking, moving objects subtly. Now, those demons are on a whole other level. (gasps) So these demons... Speaking of... They want to cause harm, overpower their victim with physical, mental, and emotional abuse. These demons... Sorry, I have it, like, capitalized in my notes, so I'm, like, reading it as I... I love it. It adds it adds that little little extra zhuzh. It reminds me of Hot Rod, where that guy's like, I'm going to church every goddamn Sunday. You will bring the demons out <laughs> That's you. These demons... <laughs> Are sent from God, as the Warrens say. God does not allow evil spirits to visit humans. Instead, it's us, the humans, who invite hate and evil into our hearts and minds and bodies. When you play with toys, like Ouija boards, or do black magic, or hold satanic rituals, Mm -hmm. this is what causes the evil, disturbing spirits to come into our lives. They think that being depressed or obsessing over a person or a place can cause these evil spirits into our lives. Ed thought of these as permissions to the law of attraction. Once the demons are inside of you, they go into three stages. Infestation, oppression, and possession. Sometimes the stuff goes further and the outcome is death. But if you have Ed and Lorraine Warren there, you're not going to die. Maybe. We'll see. During the infestation stage, the demon causes chaos and fear. 
They may do simple things such as knocking three times, scratch doors, overall creepy feelings in rooms, you know, normal everyday shit parents experience. This stage is usually when the victim tries to tell others about the strange things occurring around them and then nobody believes them. Which brings the victim to reach out to an outside source, bring in the big guns, Ed and Lorraine. The next stage is oppression, which is total domination of the victim by taking over the bodies and the body movements. And then the final stage, possession, uh, you're just fucked at that point. And then you just start crawling down the stairs like fucking exorcist and spinning your head around and vomiting out green shit. This is when the demon tries to speak on their behalf through the possessed person. The Warrens say when trying to rid the possessed demons, you must believe in some god or creator. Because Ed and Lorraine were Roman Catholic, they thought that the lack of religion was what was bringing evil spirits and presence into people's homes. During an interview, Lorraine was quoted as saying, when there's no religion, it is absolutely terrifying. That is your protection. God is your protection. It doesn't matter what your religion is. So, in other words, Liz and Renee, we're all <laughs> well, at least I'm not in your house right now. I know. I'm right? in my quarantine what? basement. I feel oh, like it's like American it. Horror Story when um American Horror Story Apocalypse when you know the sky's red above my house and there's crows falling flying around and it's really hot. It's not that bad. Anyways. <laughs> in March of 2001, Ed had a heart attack which caused him to be hospitalized for a year and he was put in a coma for several months. Lorraine stayed by his side and took care of him until he passed away on August 23, 2006. Lorraine continued doing paranormal activity <laughs> with her son-in-law. You're not even involved in paranormal activity. I know, but it just makes me laugh. I don't know why. <laughs> and on April 18, 2019, Lorraine passed away in her sleep. So Lorraine and Ed are now together running around, hopefully haunting multiple different shitheads out there probably still trying to do some ghost hunting shit even in their afterlife because i'm sure there's some levels of ghosts and demons in the afterlife maybe i don't know hell maybe maybe my child is the new ed warren probably anyways yeah so basically ed and lorraine just knew how to scam people back in the 50s before other people knew how to scam people. They were very good at what they were doing. Okay. And while I'm I don't not going to talk a whole lot about this because I know Liz is covering it, you know, their tactics were not, you know, necessarily great, but I think whether or not they were good or bad people, they definitely advanced paranormal research in a place where it Definitely wouldn't be otherwise. Shockingly, it is a lot more difficult to find the details about Ed and Lorraine Warren's cases than you would think it would be, like, especially because they happened so long ago. You would think the information would be out there, especially on the internet when we have all of this information at our fingertips. But I had to look at so many different sites and basically compile the pieces of the story from different sites. That's so, how it for my research, too, unless you like. Like, there are so many books on them and, like, so many books that they've written. But other than mm -hmm. that, I don't understand how they've kept their shit offline. Yes, when I was researching, it was hard. You can barely even find negative comments about them. Like, I don't I don't, I don't get it. Ones. How the fuck did they? How? I don't know. How? 
<laughs> I, I get maybe people are just afraid they're too afraid to like post stuff on like the one site that I found where I got majority of my information was like some I can't even remember what it was um but you could tell this person just sat there and like <clears throat> was just they typed out as much as they possibly <laughs> could I don't know where the fuck they found it but I, I mean that's that's extremely lucky because I found so many sites that would just they would have like three sentences on each case. And I'm like, there's come on, come on, buddies. Give me the meat. <laughs> Any, anyways, I had to look at a ton of sites. Um, a lot of my sources are a blog by a dude named Tom Ruffles. I don't know why he had so much information, but he did. Uh, America's most haunted, a blog called from tiny pennies, all that's interesting. The occult museum, Atlas Obscura, one of my faves, a blog called Hauntingly Pennsylvania, and I did get some information from the New England Society for Psychic Research because they do have a little bit of information on their site uh, about their more well-known cases. But it's definitely like uh, an hors d'oeuvre to get you interested, so you'll try and find out more. That's just funny. <laughs> it, it's a little... I mean, their website is actually pretty interesting, but it's definitely like not as much information as you would think it would be, considering that's the society they started. Given the background that Katie just talked about, Ed and Lorraine are definitely the most famous paranormal researchers of all time, due in no small part to the high-profile cases they involve themselves in. So I'm just going to briefly go over some of their most famous cases and talk about the part they played in each instance. So this is going to be a lot more explanation of the case itself with like little tidbits of Ed and Lorraine interjecting themselves. So if The Conjuring was the first time you heard of Ed and Lorraine Warren, then you're familiar with the case of the Perrin family, which I don't know what that says about me, but I definitely thought their name was Perrone. Mm-hmm. But it is but it is not. It's Perrin, which is less interesting, but that's not their fault. In the winter of 1970, Roger and Carolyn Perrin. Oh, God, Carolyn. I, I've only read it. I haven't said it out loud, but God, that's unfortunate. Anyways, <clears throat> Roger and Carolyn Perrin, along with their five daughters, moved into a 10-bedroom house in Harrisville, Rhode Island. The house was named the Old Arnold Estate, so that's how you know it was fancy, because that house has a name. It had been built in 1736, and it sat on 200 acres of land. So You said 10 bedrooms? Yes. How many kids did they have? Five. What the fuck do you need 10 bedrooms for? I don't know. Apparently, it wasn't even that expensive of a place to stay in. I mean, what year is this? 1970. But yeah, like it wasn't that expensive at the time because it's like an old farmhouse there was a time in history when you could buy an old farmhouse for not that much money right now all of us spooky bitches are driving the price up so before they moved in the previous owners gave them a piece of advice for the sake of your family leave the lights on at night which at first (laughs) there's a lot of like at, l- at least two of these cases, there's instances before they even moved in where they're like, maybe you shouldn't have moved in. But they did. And now we get to talk about it. So almost immediately, paranormal activity started happening. Uh, the girls noticed a young boy walking around the house who would often move their toys around. Carolyn began to hear the disembodied sound of a broom's bristles scraping against the kitchen tile when no one was in the kitchen. 
And if she left and came back again, she would often find a small pile of dirt in the center of the floor. So altogether, a very helpful ghost. I was about to say, thanks. You can come to my house anytime. And then this spirit I found very creepy, but apparently the daughters were like fond of him. It was a creepy man with a crooked smile who would appear in the corner of their room watching them as they played. And they oh, named no. him Manny. No. I guess because he was a man. I don't know. But they were like, oh, that's that's just Manny. And I'm like, that's... <laughs> Go Ew, no. That's when I start calling the pri the priest. So other strange shit that would happen, the beds would levitate a few inches off the ground. Nope. Furniture would glide across the floor on its own accord. Doors would open and slam shut. And picture frames would frequently fall from the walls. So basically everything that's about to happen at Katie's house. Yes! Oh, when my bed starts flying through the air tonight, I'm going to let y'all know first thing. And I'll never come She's going to be like, I just thought Sean was doing a really good job. And then I looked and the bed was levitating. <laughs> I'm sorry, Liz. I'm sorry. Physically and emotionally uncomfortable. Let me soothe you with more creepy stuff. Just what I needed. <laughs> so... Since all of this weird, spooky stuff was happening, the family decided to do some research in the history of the house. And they discovered eight generations had lived in the Arnold estate prior to them. And many of the previous inhabitants had met an unsavory end. Uh, for example, in the late 18th century, Mrs. John Arnold of the Arnold estate, the 93-year-old matriarch of the family, hung herself in the barn on the property how do you hang yourself at age 93? I, I mean, fairly easily, I would assume. Also, she lived to be 93? Yeah. What year was this? Late 18th century. That's pretty old, right? That's probably why she hung herself. Won't take me on his own. I'll go myself. These young whippersnappers. In addition to the matriarch hanging herself, there were also two drownings in a creek that ran through the estate, at least two drownings, and four men who mysteriously froze to death on the property when they were on a hunting trip. That's what they discovered initially, and despite that sort of grim history, they tried to comfort themselves by the fact that all the spirits they'd encountered so far had been kind. I mean, so far it had basically been moving furniture, which is annoying, but you can deal with it, and the ghost who swept their kitchen, which is honestly free labor, and then creepy dude who's watching their kids, but that's, if that's all he's doing, then that's fine. Unfortunately, this complacent nature in the house soon ended. Late one night, the girls experienced an unwelcome visitor in their beds. Oh, wait, what? An unseen force would start to yank on their legs and hair while they slept. And this would start to happen on a regular basis. This spirit began to especially torment their eight-year-old daughter, Cindy, whispering to her over and over again that there were dead soldiers buried in the walls. Can't wait for my little one to tell me that. Oh, it's going to happen. <laughs> so they found out the name of this ghost was Bathsheba, and she was definitely the worst spirit in the Arnold estate. According to local legend, there actually was a woman named Bathsheba who lived in the house. Her name was Bathsheba Thayer. And she married a man named Judson Sherman in the mid-1800s, and the couple lived at the old Arnold estate. 
Their first child died and Bathsheba was charged with its murder. The infant was found with its head impaled by a sharp object and the townsfolk were convinced. Yes. So (laughs) the townsfolk were convinced the child had been killed as a sacrifice to Satan. So, of course, there were more rumors which stated that Bathsheba was a practicing Satanist who had summoned the devil to grant her the gift of everlasting beauty. So she was arrested for the murder, but she was eventually freed because there wasn't any evidence that she had actually done it. Which this was the mid-1800s. Like, unless they literally catch you doing it, or unless you actually confess, there's... How are they going to, oh, we don't have DNA evidence and uh, we don't have any way to do any sort of forensic testing. So I guess you're free. They they were a little better 100 years after the fact of not killing people just because people p- pointed fingers at them and they just assumed things. Only a little bit. Yes. A little bit. Only a little bit. They just spent an hour poking her with a stick and they were like, did you do it? Did you do it? Did you do it? Did you do it? And she was like, no, I didn't. And they were like, well, she said she didn't. So, um. <laughs> But even though she was found innocent, she lived the rest of her life as an outcast from the community, and she eventually hanged herself from a tree behind the house. God damn. And it said in death, her body mysteriously turned to stone. Ooh. Yeah. The parent family became convinced her dark spirit remained in the house, bent on torturing anyone who stepped foot on the property. And every member of the Perrin family was haunted by her ghastly form, gray-faced and head-bent to one side as if her neck was permanently broken. So basically the bent neck lady from Haunting of Hill House. Mm-hmm. However, Bathsheba paid special attention to Carolyn for some reason. First, they were small attacks. Carolyn would feel tiny pinches on her skin or she was slapped by an unseen hand. So almost bell witch kind of stuff. Um, However, one day, Carolyn was lounging on the couch and a sharp pain shot up her leg. She examined herself and found a puncture wound on her calf that had already begun to bleed. And it looked like it had been made from a sewing needle. So at this point, the family is desperate because they're tired of this shit and I would be too. And they contacted Ed and Lorraine Warren. So at one point, Lorraine conducted a seance to attempt to contact the spirits that were possessing the family. During the seance, Carolyn became possessed, speaking in tongues and rising from the ground in her chair. So seeing this evidence, they agreed to help and set out to cleanse the house of evil. And over the span of the remaining 10 years the family lived in the house, the Warrens made multiple trips to investigate and try and help the family. However, while The Conjuring has a happy ending where Ed and Lorraine are successfully able to banish Bathsheba and send her back to hell... Unfortunately, that's not how things went down in real life. Ed and Lorraine's attempt to cleanse the house only seemed to make the spirits more active and more upset. And fearing for his family's safety, Roger eventually demanded they leave the house and never come back. The only reason the, they escaped this was they were finally able to move out after living there for 10 years. So for 10 years, they dealt with all of this shit Why? and were, I guess, saving up their money. And they finally were able to move out in 1980. I don't care if I if 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 I don't have the money, if I'm being tormented and tortured and haunted like that, my ass would be gone. If some ghost bitch is stabbing me with a needle in yeah. my own house that yeah. she does not pay rent in, mm-hmm. I'm gone. 
creepy old man's watching my children play. And <laughs> you already have a creepy little boy playing with your child. Goodbye. <laughs> One of these days, I'm going to walk by his room, and he's not going to be in there. But I'm going to see a little boy, and I'm going to be like, "Hey, I thought you were at. Thought you, oh, thought you were somewhere. I thought you were across the street." And he's going to turn to look at you, and he's going to have glowing blue eyes. Or I'm going to do a double take and look in there and there's not going to be a child in there. And I'm just mm-hmm. going to throw myself down the stairs. And well, you call Continuing on. So since the parent family was the first Conjuring movie, it only made sense to me. The next case I would go over would be the case that was the subject of the second Conjuring movie. The Enfield Poltergeist, which is an astounding case. So... In 1977, single parent Peggy Hodgson, we love a single mother, moved into a rented home in Enfield, North London with her four children, Margaret, Janet, Johnny, and Billy. In August of that year, she called the police after her two older children claimed their bedroom furniture was moving and they heard knocking sounds on the walls and the ceiling. While there, the police constable saw a chair slide on the floor, but could not determine if it moved by itself or if it was pushed by someone. Which I don't know how that's something you'd be confused about. <laughs> did I just like, say someone pushed that? Or did it just move by itself? Also, like, how strong do you have to be? Like, this is, I didn't say the age of the children, but her oldest child was 13. Like, how strong do you have to be? to push a chair so that it slides across the floor i've pushed chairs like out of my way they go like three to four inches and that's it like if you saw a chair slide across the floor that wasn't pushed by somebody i've seen poltergeist how many poltergeist references will i make in this in this episode i don't no, and I will not be silenced. So after this, the case caught the imagination of the public because the Daily Mail and the Mirror reported on it. And it was eventually investigated by a number of skeptics and paranormal investigators. The Society for Psychical Research, not to be confused with the New England Society for Psychic Research, sent a couple people to investigate. They sent investigators Maurice Gross and Guy Lyon Playfair, and these two guys were the main paranormal investigators for this case. That is something important to know. Because despite what the Conjuring 2 movie would have you believe, the Warrens weren't very involved with investigating the haunting at Enfield. Although at this time, they were at the height of their careers, so even their small involvement made this case a little more famous. We know details about their visit because Maurice Gross wrote about it in his meticulous notes. The Warrens didn't arrive at the Enfield house until June of 1978. And as, in case you've forgotten, um, August of 1977 is really when people started paying attention to it. So this was almost a year later. Once they got there, they interviewed Peggy, who is the mom, and Janet and Margaret, which were her two daughters, her two older kids, which were her daughters, and Peggy's brother, John Burkham. So that evening, Gross and members of the Hodgson family participated in a transatlantic telephone discussion from John Burkham's house, produced by a member of President Carter's press corps. President Jimmy Carter, I love you. After the broadcast, Lorraine went into the Hodgson's house and entered a trance state in which she received impressions closely related to Mrs. Hodgson's ex-husband. Though as far as Mrs. Hodgson and Gross were aware, Lorraine had no personal knowledge of her ex-husband. The Warrens ended up leaving just after midnight and rang Gross on June 27th on their way back home. 
Gross concludes his report, I personally was very impressed with our visitors' knowledge of the occult and the manner in which they conducted their limited investigation. So these references to limited investigation and the occult are most likely Gross throwing shade at the Warrens because he was not a fan. They did end up coming back a couple years later, sent by a man named Gerald Brittle, an author who was writing a book entitled The Demonologist, The Extraordinary Career of Ed and Lorraine Warren. It is possible, though unlikely, that Playfair and Gross were unaware of this visit at the time, and it was privately arranged with the Hodgsons. According to Brittle, the Warren spent August 6th through 9th, 1980, in the house. He also insisted the Warrens investigated Enfield at the same time as Playfair and Gross, perhaps to imply the Warrens' one was as extensive, though it clearly was not. Brittle says that during the visit, the Warrens and two colleagues experienced spirit phenomena, recorded 13 hours of audio featuring the entities in the house, photographed levitations of objects, the appearance of excrement. I don't know how that's a ghost thing. That just sounds like an animal had an accident, but you do you, Warrens, and the spontaneous removal of wallpaper in the kitchen, witnessed the materialization of rocks and the dematerialization of a bottle of holy water, as well as interviewing the family again. So here is what Ed Warren had to say about the case in Gerald Brittle's book, The Demonologist, The Extraordinary Career of Ed and Lorraine Warren. Those who deal with the supernatural day in and day out know the phenomena are there. There's no doubt about it. Therefore, when people tell me they don't believe in ghosts and spirit forces, what they're really saying to me is they're not familiar with the data on the subject. Yet, the data is there, should one care to look. In fact, much of it has been collected under such rigid conditions as to make a lot of other scientific research pale in comparison. For example... Take a case Lorraine and I began investigating this past summer in Enfield, England, where inhuman spirit phenomena were in progress. Now, you couldn't record the dangerous, threatening atmosphere inside that little house, but you could film the levitations, teleportations, and dematerialization of people and objects that were happening there. Not to mention the many hundreds of hours of tape recordings made of these spirit voices speaking out loud in the rooms. Despite Brittle's insistence of the thoroughness of the Warren's investigation, the brevity of it is in sharp contrast to the lengthy, years-long investigation conducted by Gross and Playfair. Understandably so, the pair likely felt patronized and insulted that the Warrens had swanned in for a few days and crudely attempted to impose an interpretation fitting their pet perspective of a demonic presence, one at variance with Gross and Playfair's own experiences. Part of Gross and Playfair thinks some of the occurrences some of the paranormal occurrences were done by the children but they also think it was just poltergeist because it was a lot of levitations and moving furniture and stuff like that definitely not anything that fit a demonic presence however as katie said the warrens were very big on demons and inserting demonic presences everywhere Ooh, inserting demonic presences everywhere I don't know how you, how did you turn that sexual? How did you turn that sexual? Because you said insert. All right. Now we're going to talk about the big mamma jamma, the cream of the crop, the most famous of all the paranormal cases Ed and Lorraine Warren investigated. The ghost nest with the mostest. Yes. The creepy, murdery ghost with the mostest and possibly the most famous haunting in American history. So... You have to start with what happens before the Lutz family moves in. Let's start with 
the big true crime part of this. On November 13th, 1974, in the small town of Amityville, New York, Ronald DeFeo burst into Harry's bar and screamed that his parents had been shot and killed. Upon investigation, police discover the bodies of six members of the DeFeo family. The father, mother, and four of the five DeFeo children were found. Obviously, the fifth one is, like, Ronnie, and he's clearly still alive. Uh, They were found face down, shot in the back of their heads. Ronald claimed he wasn't home during the murders and only discovered the bodies of his parents prior to arriving at Harry's bar. However, after police officers found a gun case for a 35 caliber Marlin rifle in Ronald's room, he confessed to the murders. After a lengthy trial, he was found guilty of the heinous murders of his family, and he was sentenced to six consecutive life sentences. But there's never been a solid explanation of how one person acting alone could take the lives of six family members in the dead of night, 3.15 a.m., remember that, and why no one heard the shots being fired. Ronald also swore he heard the voices of demonic entities telling him to kill his family. So this happened November 13th. A little over a year later, on December 18th, 1975, the Lutz family moved into the DeFeo home. And it had been 13 months since the DeFeo murders had occurred. So George and Kathleen Lutz just thought the Dutch Colonial was a lovely home and a steal at $80,000. Honestly, same. While they were unpacking, a Catholic priest arrived to bless their new home. And as the priest made his way upstairs to the second floor, he entered the bedroom, which had formerly belonged to... Two of the younger DeFeos, Mark and John, he began sprinkling holy water, at which point an unseen voice told the priest, Get out! Which he hastily did. Oh my god! (laughs) So he hastily did. And this little chicken shit priest, which is literally what I have in my notes, uh, did not tell the Lutz family about the voice he heard. But warned them, do not use the upstairs room as a bedroom and do not let anyone sleep in there. And while this was ominous and they had no reason to believe he was telling the truth, they did abide by the words of the priest and they turned the room into a sewing room instead. So good on them, I guess. However, from the very first night they moved in, the family claimed they felt strange sensations. George was plagued by the constant chill in the house and spent all of his time feeding the fireplace. George noticed a change in his grooming habits, growing a beard, which is what Sean is doing, and that's why you should both be careful while you're in that house. (laughs) And his and Kathy's health declined drastically while they were living there. Their daughter began spending all of her time in her room playing with an imaginary friend in her room, Katie. This imaginary friend was a red-eyed pig named Jody, who could transform not only her shape, but size. In fact, at times, their daughter insisted Jody was larger than the house. Mm. The daughter also claimed Jody could not be seen by anyone else unless she wanted them to. Mysterious, mm -hmm, Mysterious foul odors would emanate from different locations of the house. Black stains appeared on the toilets and ceramic fixtures. Kathy was often touched by an unseen force and a green gelatin-like substance would appear throughout the house, perhaps suggesting the presence of Mormons. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for that 
Uh, pity chuckle. I'll take it. It was a terrible joke, but I put it in my notes anyway. I'm not doing the satisfaction for that one. <laughs> Hundreds of flies appeared in the sewing room, which, if you'll remember, was creepy voice room. Despite it being the dead of winter, George would wake up regularly at 3.15 a.m. I hate waking up between the hours of 3 a.m. and 4 a.m. Yes. I'm always like, no, no. Somebody died in that house. No. Also, I feel like this is going to happen to Sean in the near future. Oh George, <laughs> George awoke one night to witness his wife transform into a 90-year-old hag. I'm already there. I know. And then the next night, she began levitating over the bed. I do that too. Oh, God, it's already happening. Liz, get out of that house. Look, I'm trying <laughs> to help you, Liz. Ground. I'm duct taped to the ground. <laughs> so the Lutz family tried on numerous occasions to contact that same little chicken shit Catholic priest, only to find the phones would cut out whenever they would try to call. <laughs> and then after failing to get the priest to return to their house, they took matters into their own hands. And I find this next, like, I wish I could be one of the flies in the sewing room just so I could witness this happening. Armed with a crucifix, they walked throughout the house reciting the Lord's Prayer, and a chorus of voices erupted in response, asking them, will you stop? So the spirits were asking them to shut up? Yeah, the spirits were like, can you not? But that surprisingly was not the final night. The final night was apparently the worst night, with furiously loud banging emanating throughout the entire house, furniture being moved on its own willy-nilly. And children were being terrorized by unseen forces. So this apparently was the last straw. After 28 days of living in that house, the family said they could take no more. They grabbed only a few belongings and fled the house, taking shelter at Kathy's mother's home in nearby Babylon. So 20 days after they fled the house, Ed and Lorraine Warren were called in by Marvin Scott, a news reporter with Channel 5 NY who had covered the Amityville story and worked on a prior investigation with the Warrens. A team of reporters, investigators, and parapsychologists were assembled by Ed Warren and met at the home at 112 Ocean Avenue. The Lutz family refused to re-enter the home during the entire investigation. They were like, no, we're done. Voices, flies, no thank you. Pigs with red eyes, no thank you. We are done, done, done. During the investigation, Ed was physically pushed to the floor while uttering a religious provocation in the basement. So he was probably just being a little evangelical bitch, and the ghost was like, no, thank you, not in my house. Lorraine was overwhelmed by the sense of a demonic presence and plagued by psychic impressions of the DeFeo family bodies laid along the floor covered in white sheets. The research team also allegedly captured an image of a spirit that appeared as a little boy peering from the second floor. And you can actually Google this image, and it is kind of spooky. Some people say it could have been one of the investigators, but it does definitely look like a little boy, specifically one of the DeFeo boys. So definitely Google that. It's creepy. Through researching of the property itself... They discovered the land had previously belonged to a man named John Ketchum, uh, the great-great-grandfather of Ash. And he was a practice... Really? Yep. Nothing? Why do I even include jokes in my notes if you guys aren't going to laugh? Listen, we just want to leave space for the audience to laugh. Yeah, you got to catch them all. Got to catch them all. 
I'm begging for scraps here. I'm just, I'm sorry. It's okay. I'm glad you guys found the phone. Da, da, da. So John Ketchum was a practicing black magician. He owned a cottage on the land prior to the construction of the Dutch colonial in 1924. John requested for his remains to be buried on the property, and they remain there to this day. Why? Additionally, they found out there used to be a building on the property, which the Shinnecock tribe used to house members who were terminally or mentally ill. Allegedly, those in this enclosure were left to die. The Warrens believed the suffering of those left to die imposed a very negative energy onto the property. And according to Lorraine, such a negative history was a magnet for demonic spirits and the preternatural. Despite the thoroughness of the investigation, the Lutzes still refused to move back into the house. They ended up selling the rest of their belongings, except for those taken by the Warrens to place in their occult museum, and relocated to California, living their best life. Those are some of their most high-profile ones, some of the ones they are most known for. Some of the ones that made them over a billion dollars. Right? I want to do that. Right. I want to I wanna greatly dramatize an event and then make money. See, what we need to do is we need to redo this podcast. Delete, oh. all, the past, delete all the past episodes. Katie, you are a psychic now. Liz, you can sense animal spirits. And I can talk to demons. And this is how we're going to make money now. All right. I can already see it in our future. Psychic. <laughs> you are already in character. I love it. There's a lemur. I'm getting something. Hold on. Oh my God. I got it. My psychic abilities are for the animals. And Renee, it's like demon animals. It's all tied <laughs> together. It's all tied together. <laughs> All right, well, are you guys ready for me to tell you about how much everyone hates the Warrens and how they are basically disenfranchised and not real at all? Yeah. Hashtag canceled, baby. Yes. Oh. Uh, we love cancel culture. It is 2020 <laughs> and the Warrens are canceled. Get that Ouija board, Katie. We got to talk to the Warrens and tell them they're canceled. Anyways, <laughs> so first I would just like to talk about how I don't know if you guys knew this, but this was my most favorite fact that I learned. Did you know that Ed Warren had a live-in underage lover? Get the Ouija board out. Can't sold. Ew. I, I did not know that. that. So, first of all, live-in underage lover sounds like a really funny way of saying child sex slave. So the couple took in a girl when she was somewhere between 13 and 18, depending on who you believe. But she's in pictures with them, so she's 100% underage. And she entered a relationship that was consensual, but only with Ed. <laughs> Hold on. Do they? How old was the girl? S- somewhere, might have been 13. Might have been 18. disgusting and blurry. You know, I can't remember if, if she was an illegal adult or she had just started puberty. Who knows? But what we do know is that at one point... They were saying it was consensual. Now, um, this woman who doesn't like to be named and her uh, children, they say it was abuse. Her, um, I won't say her last name, but her name is Judy. The relationship went on for four decades until Ed passed away. Oh, my God. Why? And this all came out 
when the lawsuit over the percentages of the Conjuring series came out. Oh, so it was like one of those things that like people knew, but they didn't say anything. And then when mm-hmm. Ed and Lorraine were back in the news, it was like, oh, oh, how funny. I just finished making this pot of tea. Would you like some? <laughs> A couple of people investigated Ed and Lorraine Warren. So that would be um, the most famous would be Perry DeAngelis. And he, long story short, was like, hmm. I believe, like, these people had stuff going on, but, like, Ed and Lorraine were basically just, like, monetizing off of people's trauma, not necessarily, like, people's demons. It's like, what's your face? The Long Island medium. That's exactly who I was thinking of, and I was about to say it, but I was like, I'm going to wait and see what Katie says. I mean, that's true. So, in The Conjuring 2... They, I think what happened was when that came out, then skeptics were like, okay, this has gone too fucking far. Like, <laughs> the first one was like, yeah, whatever, haha, ha, have your fun. But we're going to make a, a series capitalized yeah. off of this? Like, no, absolutely not. The associate dean for the Center for Inquiry Institute, Joe Nickel, um, showed the case as a hoax, and Yale professor Stephen Novella and late podcaster Perry DeAngelis uh, investigated all the claims by the Warrens, and he even interviewed them. And their statement was, what we found was a very nice couple, some genuinely sincere people, but absolutely zero compelling evidence that any haunting was ever real, because you will never find an account that wasn't theirs. This is mm-hmm. true. Mm-hmm. When I was researching for their major cases in pretty much every single one there's not a case where ed and lorraine went in did their thing and actually helped anybody like it's always like oh they either made things worse or they were barely there or nothing happened yep so two things i wanted to read one is from the saturday evening post and i think this is the only article they ever did on warren so if you just want to look it up yourself uh, you can just go to SaturdayEveningPost.com, and it's called Conjuring the Real Ed and Lorraine Warren. Um, but their closing paragraph I thought was really interesting. They said, the Warrens occupy a curious place in our culture. They are real people who have become franchise characters. They investigated frightening things with real conviction, even as other people debunked them with equal and real conviction. To some, they represent curiosity and a belief in powers outside the visible world, while to others, they were nice, lovable people who took their own desire too far. Um, whichever side you land on, the story of the Warrens is a fascinating example of how a life's passion can lead to cultural immortality. Mm-hmm. The Warren stories are easy to dismiss in the light of day, but it's that time alone in the dark, theaters or at home, with an inexplicable noise creaking on your stairs that makes this all seem real. I can just see Ed and Lorraine walking into someone's house, and Ed's, like, talking to them, and Lorraine's walking around the house, and while he's talking to them, she just, like, stomps on the steps loudly, and Ed's like, demons. (laughs) (laughs) They just walk in, they're like, you know what I smell? Oh, Lorraine, I smell some demons. And money. And she's like, oh, I'm sorry, honey. Let me close my legs. 
That's got that demon ass, ass pussy. Mm-hmm. Ooh, oh, that's, that's, that's a dab. <laughs> Grab some holy water and a napkin. Yes. That's a demonic ass pussy. Okay. <clears throat> so, in my opinion, this really sums it up, I think, perfectly. So, I'm reading an article uh, from criminalelement.com, and it's just, like, called the Warren Case Files. So, they kind of do, like, an overview of all the cases and, like, the monetization of them and all of that. But then the last part, it says, like, the truth depends on exactly how much money is involved. So, if you want to believe in the paranormal, the Warrens have always been exciting and intriguing figures. The partnership of a soldier turned demonologist and a psychic medium is the stuff of great horror fiction. Her amazingly, by the way, my favorite part, Lorraine's amazingly frilly high neck dresses and his heroic 70s sideburns are the icing (laughs) on the devil's food cake. I feel like people need to remember that the Warrens do not look like, what is it, Tayla, Tyla, Farmigia, Farmigia? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Patrick Wilson. There's like like plump, more normal versions. Yeah, I mean, honestly, Lorraine Warren is still she looks she looks fine. She looks great. But like looking at Ed Warren and it's just like, oh, he looks like he looks like he looks like Jim Jones with a couple more Big Macs. He does. He looks like yeah. Jim Jones was a meatball in VeggieTales. Yes. <laughs> That is that is <laughs> if Jim Jones and Bob the Tomato had a baby <laughs> demons, that is Ed Warren. <laughs> okay. Therein lies the crux of the matter. They're great characters. They fit so neatly into horror narratives and tropes that whether the stories they tell are true or not is almost irrelevant. It's pretty clear at this point, hindsight being 2020, that Ed and Lorraine vastly overstated their contribution to police investigations and the study of the paranormal. Given the later testimonies of the people involved, they most likely fabricated and staged a lot of the evidence that she continues to hold up as scientific proof. To build up reputation, attention, and prestige, um, she tried to legitimize their interest in the occult and the otherworldly for money. They may not have charged their clients for their services, but they did get free room, board, and travel everywhere they went. And tours of their private collection of evil and possessed objects come at a cost. They get royalties from their books and movies, and their New England Society for Psychic Research undeniably benefits from their high-profile status. So, fact or fiction... Does it even matter when it's quality entertainment, is my question. And perhaps it's only significant when a fortune and royalties is on the line. You can think what you want to think, but I think that they are phony. They probably saw a couple weird, creepy things in their lifetime, and they're like, oh, look, funny. Let's go get it. I think when you're reading anything about Ed and Lorraine Warren, just remember their primary goal always was, how can we get rich off of this? It's no coincidence that the Amityville horror was Im- immediately turned into a best-selling book. And then as soon as they found out about the haunting in Connecticut, they sought to turn that into a book as well because they knew that's where the money was. Mm-hmm. I know that I read pretty much every everything 
in my part as if it actually happened. I am still up in the air over whether I believe they're bullshit, but I, I feel like it's it's undeniable that they did. They don't do anything. No, they don't do anything, but they walk know. into the house and say, Demons, are you there? It's your boy. And then leave. <laughs> right. Call us. Don't but, like, you know, we know about a lot of this shit because of them. So, yeah, true. This is true. It's the double edged sword of the war. Where, because- where the, not even the famous cases. Where are the small cases at that they've helped? Mm-hmm. I don't think there are any because the exactly. even like the, the Smurl haunting, which I didn't go over, they didn't help them. Like their family just kind of left because nothing was working. And right. then the other one I didn't do because I want us to do a full episode on this one. So I specifically didn't include it in my notes. But the Borley Rectory, they also didn't help there either. It's well known enough that they were able to squeeze a movie out of it in the Conjuring series. Rectory and squeeze rectum. <sighs> but yeah, the Borley Rectory is actually like a, a really interesting story. I would love, I, I can't remember if I put it on the calendar or not. If not, I'm going to. But like, it's a really interesting story. Very creepy. The Warrens are kind of involved. It's really good. So I deliberately didn't include it in my notes because I wanted us to cover it. But yeah, they did. they didn't help there either. So like, they don't help. They just like. They're basically the TMZ of ghost hunting. They just come in and they're like, this is a thing and it's happening. And there's demons. <laughs> and then they oh, leave. Man. Ed Warren shakes some, shakes across around and Lorraine has a psychic vision and then they leave. Exactly. So, I mean, I'm not trying to tell you guys what to believe, listeners. Um and I mean, to be honest, most of the time I convince my thing myself that things aren't real, so I don't have anxiety attacks. I feel like if they were authentic, they actually would have accounts, like people and police and realtors, or just anyone, like hotel people, like anyone would be able to tell you what they were doing is authentic from like actual like witness, but there is none. So, mm-hmm. but I just think that we should all be taking pretty much everything with a grain of salt and doing our own research. So that's what the Conspiracy Podcast is all about. And I am glad that we were all able to uh, bring you another fun episode. But, hey, I'm a psychic now, so. Oh, yeah. Pay me and I will tell your future. All right. If you want to pay me $15 to for me to read you chupacabra porn, send us an email at conspiracypod at gmail.com. <laughs> If you want to uh, purchase some of Liz's feet pics, uh, send us a DM on Instagram at Conspiracy Podcast ATL. Really high <laughs> arches. And I get pedicures every two weeks. Oh my God. I've okay. seen her feet. They're worth it. They're beautiful. Um, if you I'm want- looking at them right now. They're green and sparkly. Yeah, she's got sparkly <laughs> colors on her on her. On her. Sexy toes. And you could see these too. All you have to do is DM us for prices. And if you would like to subscribe to Katie's OnlyFans, send us a DM on our Twitter (laughs) at TheConspiracy and we will shoot you the link. Once I make it, I haven't actually done my profile yet. (laughs) (laughs) To get get in on the waiting list. Yes. It's a long list waiting for me to open that door. Uh, So that is it, y'all. 
Also, just send us our opinions of of what you think of Ed and Lorraine Warren. Before this episode, after this episode, which Conjuring movie is your favorite? We will see you next time, guys. We love you. Yes. Bye. Bye. I would like to live. I just want to do God's will. But I want you to know tonight that we are